This is Circumcessions. I'm Fardot Kelly, and you are very welcome to episode five of the series today. My co-host today is Chris Long. Chris is a pediatric urologist and an assistant professor at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And with myself in Dublin and Chris in the US, we are going to virtually travel all the way down to Brazil as we interview Professor Antonio Macedo in Sao Paulo. Tony Macedo is a professor at the Federal University of Sao Paulo as well as the Chief of Pediatric Urology. He received his PhD in Mainz in Germany and he's an Associate Editor of the Journal of Pediatric Urology. He has hundreds of papers, several visiting professorships and speaks five languages. So Tony and Chris, thanks a million for being on the podcast today. Um, I might kick off, if that's okay, with something that's hopefully straightforward. Um, and, and, and I guess the first question is, for those people who might be listening to this who might be unclear, what exactly is the Macedo Malone Antigrade Continence Enema? And I guess, what's its purpose? Well, uh, you want to talk before about the Macedo Malone, but in the context that it was like a son of the Macedo Reservoir. You know that I was trained in Mainz, Germany, and I was deeply in affected by continent diversion because most of the diversion techniques started in, in Germany, in Mainz, with uh, home founder was my mentor. I had also the opportunity of having Margit Fisch with me. And at that time, I was doing uh, Mainz pouch, Ido reservoirs. And when I came to Brazil, I got the idea of working with small bowel and I got the principle of incorporating some of the strategies of the multi technique that had been published very recently to the piece of bowel. So I did this transverse flap that moved cranially and is a way to avoid the use of the appendix. So uh, I was in the ESPU and I saw for the first time uh, Pierre Mohican talking about the left. Uh, Monty Maloney, and I was in the audience with the idea of the Macedo Reservoir. So at the same time, I thought, oh, I could do the same thing I was doing for diversions in the left column to avoid anastomosis. It would be much easier, simpler. And then it's the concept. All my strategies in reconstruction, they are not using the appendix. So the purpose is to provide a very straightforward procedure on the left column, and that means uh, a small uh, time for washouts with a pretty easy technique without having limitation of nasal mobility. So I just do a transverse flap, I make like a, a valve, and it works. And I do this uh, currently by a very small incision on the left side in about 15 to 20 minutes. So that's the purpose. Yeah, so, so Antonio, so to follow up on that, I, you know, since this is a podcast, one question I would have is if you have a video of it, I'm sure we would love to see that because it sounds amazing in concept. But um, so what is your current algorithm then for patients that need a, you know, a continent diversion, you know, both from the bowel and the bladder standpoint? And how would you, how would you compare, you know, the, you know, your Macedo tube to um, say someone that uses like a saccostomy tube that uses the appendix for the bladder diversion? Well, for the first thing, uh, it's uh, a procedure that it's uh, really, from the cosmetic point of view, you don't need a button. So it's much more cosmetic. 
the secostomy tube, uh, you, you're still on the right side. So you still have a duration of washouts of more than one hour. In our concept, the average of uh, washout time is about 20 minutes, can go from 50 to 30 minutes. Less pain because the amount of volume necessary is rarely more than 500 ml. Whereas in the left, in the right column for the classic Malone, it may take more than one liter. So there are many advantages for that. And I'm really concerned, I'm really convinced that the left uh, column is the way to go. And the technique is really uh, amazing because I always do it at the end. Uh, when I'm finishing with the reconstruction of the bladder, I'm closing everything and then I do a small transverse incision on the left hypochondrial and I just assess the column, I take it outside of the body, do a transverse prep, do the whole thing, put everything inside, so I do it a very small incision. It's a, a pretty a simple uh, procedure. And I can tell you this right now, with more than 22 years of experience. I started uh, the Macedo at 98. You can see you have uh, the publications you have in the main textbooks, the Hillman, the Bundetti, the, the, the green edition of the Campables. And, uh, well, after so long, more than 600 cases of reconstruction. And I, today I work uh, one day in the week in a major spina bifida clinic in Sao Paulo, the AACD, where we do a, a major reconstruction every week. That's, that's amazing, uh, Tony, and, and a huge volume of numbers there that you have as well. I, I guess this kind of segues us in nicely. You kind of mentioned the spina bifida uh, aspect in your clinic, but you know when we kind of move on to things like the myelomeningocele and utero repairs that you have obviously published a lot on, um, I, I guess you know when you look at these, when you look at some of the, uh, some of the papers regarding this, uh, the second trimester repairs of this has certainly reduced rates of hindbrain herniation and the needs for VP shunting by a year of age. Uh, in some papers, it's also increased mental development and motor composite scores uh, compared to postnatal repairs. But looking at these high numbers and the quality of the papers that your group has, uh, has been uh, publishing, it would appear that these improved outcomes that we see in other specialties aren't really following through to urology as well. Does this surprise you? I have to be very honest with you, uh, Farbond, because the major difference from our data from any other paper uh, perspective after the months is that all the data is produced by the same institution. All aerodynamic data is provided by the same device. So our experience is unique in the world. When it started, no one knew. We knew from the months that uh, the advantage were clear in regards to motor status and ventral peritoneal shunts. We were surprising that the data of uh, ventral peritoneal shunts in Brazil is even less than this was reported in the most. It's less than 10%. And we started doing the uh, evaluation neurological. Well, it's a study. We have to see what data brings you. And here, you saw in my publication list that our treatment is very categorized. We provide a categorization uh, pattern uh, based on most of the literature, but we have four patterns 
the high risk group, which is those who have more than 40 centimeters of water. So either in compliance or associated with sprinkler, a better sprinkler dismerger. You have that group which leaks at very low pressure. So most of people consider this a non, a non problematic uh, group, but we know it's, it, they are. Because when they are five, they are six, they will have to undergo a major operation, otherwise they will stay in paddies, you know? So we consider this group, which represents about 25 to 30%, also major bladder dysfunction. It's not a high risk for upper urinary tract. Then you have the hippocontractile population, which is about 10%, and only five to 8%, they have a really normal bladder pattern. So when you look at the literature, there is a lot of pressure, especially in the American uh, set of cases, to get better improvement in results. We were the only group that was reporting. <laughs> it's not that. And then the Zurich group came recently with a paper right now with more follow-up. And then they saw exactly what we did. But they are still saying about the 55% of high-risk group but people don't consider as major bladder dysfunction. And they come to my office at the age of five, six, to the continent. And this represents an augmentation, a bladder a neck procedure or a sling, whatever you want to do. Or... So this is a major uh, problem for reconstruction. So if you put those two groups together, it's more than 80%. So it's not improvement. So what we did, I compared with another population before 2011, because in Brazil, I can't do a randomized study because it wouldn't be ethic. My, all my patients come uh, after fetal surgery, but we did the same protocol in the past. We have just published last year, comparing uh, postnatal with prenatal. And since I have all the neurodynamic data, I looked, it's the same. And I look at three times, I compared the first three neurodynamics for each patient. And I have columns comparing them. And it was very nice because the last one, we, we published the natural evolution of the patients with low uh, leakage. It's amazing because we showed there the improvement comparing them yearly up to the age of five. If they were leak under 30 centimeters of water, I think, I don't remember, but I think that almost 70 or 80% of patients will remain uh, still leaking. It's amazing, Antonio. I mean, I think uh, that's amazing work that you guys are doing. I mean, I think, you know, I, I had the benefit of working at CHOP and, you know, we're part of the MOMS trial, you know, with uh, UCSF and, you know, at Vanderbilt as well. And, um, you know, I think the most recent sort of publication from the MOMS2 trials kind of found similar things that you did and that there was no difference in terms of sort of the fetal repair, the bladder outcomes of patients that underwent a fetal repair versus, you know, a postnatal repair. And, and in my practice, you, you know, we're, we're constantly trying to sort of look at our data. So, so let me ask you this. I mean, you know, given sort of that picture that you're painting of the bladder, um, given the other, you know, sort of benefits that Fernanda mentioned, you know, do you think that... It, it matters that the, the bladder outcomes aren't that great? I mean, do you think that, 
you know, sort of doing the fetal repair, like the benefits of it sort of outweigh, you know, sort of a lack of improvement that you're seeing in the bladder itself? No, yes, I'm, I'm convinced that the bladder doesn't matter at all. In the neurological uh, picture, I, I can't tell you, it has no advantage. And I challenge anyone in the world to sit and debate with me based on data. I always tell my, my, my families, the patients, if you don't come with your son at the age of five, six, if you don't bring your child, your child will bring you here, you know, for this population. Because when they look for the friends and they are using pads, uh, they, they want to come and they want to get that fixed. We may yet take you up on that offer of a debate, Tony. Now, that could be another, another episode altogether, but... You know, we we're kind of speaking offline, and uh, and Chris, you had, you had mentioned that in the field repair that uh, patients often had to be followed closely for a possible tethered cord, specifically between the ages of two to four, and that, you know that this obviously an important uh, stressor on families. Along with this is the need for close follow up with with potentially yearly vi- video urodynamics into the age of four or five as well. Does that sound about right, Chris? About what kind of as a summary of what we we're saying, and 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 I guess Tony. What's your follow-up protocol with these? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, like Antonio was mentioning, I mean, I don't think, you know, we don't treat these patients any differently in terms of follow-up. And, you know, our, our, our standard is at least a yearly urodynamics um, until they get to somewhere between the ages of four and five. Um, and I'm just kind of looking to make sure we're not missing anything. Um, so I'd be, I'd be curious to hear what your sort of experience there is uh, with Antonio with that as well. Yes, we follow uh, yearly this population. Uh, and only if they are having uh, trouble and the bladder is not stabilized, then I ask them to come every six months for aerodynamic uh, revision. But otherwise, they come early, and uh, it's, it's the best protocol. I, I, normally, I ask to follow them in this way until they are into puberty, because I notice that at this moment, the bladder function gets some stabilization. But until there, 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 there are many modifications. Okay, yeah, it's amazing how dynamic of a process it is in terms of just how much they do change over time, and it's not, you know, it's not static. It's, it's something that that definitely can, can change, and and with no real outward signs, right? Even the lack of urinary tract infections or even normal ultrasounds, I found patients that have had some markedly sort of abnormal, you know, video urodynamics. So it's 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 important to to, to stress that with families. If you follow them. Uh, at least in the first uh, the first time with VCUG and neurodynamics, I don't believe it's essential to do video dynamics. And that was a point uh, of uh, of uh, discussions in all my papers because everyone wants to me provide a video dynamics, and I don't think they're essential because if you have a good VCUG in the first setting, and normally you put them in anticholinergics. And they have a very stable low pressure. What do you need? They are already under uh, catheterization. They have low pressure. Why would you need a VCUG, uh, a video dynamics? You come to the same conclusions, you know, and you are sparing some uh, X-rays and all the, the tissue. So, but that's my personal point. Uh, what I see, I'm very, <laughs> a very pragmatic, uh, crazy part. And when I bring that arguments, they have to accept them. Oh, that's an important point, and it's, and I suppose it also speaks to um, to those centres that may have some issues with resource uh, utilisation as well. 
Um, but if I may, we might just move down a little bit down the down the uh, the urinary tract a little bit down towards the descendants of the urogenital sinus here. Um, you've had some success with your. Um, I don't know. Do you want to, do you call it the GUD technique or is it the good technique? Yes. Good. Sorry yes. for your distal hyperspadius. Chris was with me in practice. Whether he said this is the very first time. But, so I did. But, and, but, and then I, an Italian stepped step and asked me, ah, you, you shouldn't say partial urethral mobilization with aggressive glander cuts or whatever. You could see it goods, glander urethral, and I accepted immediately uh, the suggestion of this uh, Italian surgeon. I don't even remember his name, but uh, it, well, that's a good idea. Good, because good is good. <laughs> Listen, it does what it says on the tin. It's a good trademark. Absolutely. But tell me, well, I guess what I wanted to know is, you know, what, why, why approach this in in this way? You know, what brought you to the point where you said, look, something's got to change here, and I want to, I, I want to adjust how we're doing these. Oh, I think that most of experienced guys are not happy with this. You, you see, you look at the data and you see, cannot be, I cannot be so bad like this. I do have, I, 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 I see a lot of referrals with uh, fistula in the coronal area. I see people with some structures in the retromiatus. And I start to think about things. And, uh, after and then I came with the idea of being more aggressive in the glands than the average. And uh, at that time, I started to do, to incorporate two well-established principles. The principles of urethral mobilization, but not that urethral mobilization that you see uh, uh, going very uh, down in the urethra, just the distal part and incorporating the aspects of redoing hepispadias in which you disassemble the, 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 the Cover, the cavernous tissue to the sponges tissue. And then I started to practically deconstruct the glands. At the beginning, I, I please remember in Frankfurt, I still we used to keep a bridge of tissue, very thin bridge. But after that, I disconnected also everything. So basically what I do, I started degloving the penis, then I see the distal uh, hypospadia from inside. Uh, this technique, I just use it for coronal and subcoronal, because otherwise you have bad results. When I see, I started lateral to the sponges tissue, the epsilon, and I started to create a plan incising, right, the clinical bulgenia, that thin uh, layer that you see the corpora blue. When you reach there, you mobilize the flap laterally from each side. And then you see the urethras disconnected of the glands. At this moment, from this very plan, I go and do an epsilon incision, inverted epsilon incision. Then I open the glands totally. And then you have another uh, limitation of the tip, which is the gland size preoperative use of testosterone. You don't need, need this. I recently recorded, uh, and it's, this video is in my 
YouTube channel, you could put Antonio Macedo Jr. Uh, I did a very detailed trick video showing the, how I do it at this moment, because I changed, as I said. In the last year, I think now I have the padronization of the technique. And so you see, when you open the glance in the midline, it gets very large. So you don't have concerns about small uh, glands. Uh, you can operate 12 millimeters glands. When you open this, this comes to 17, 18 mLs. So it can embrace very easily uh, the ritual. And you look laterally, you see that any subcoronal uh, hypersprager, when you're mobilizing distally and deconstructing the glands, it goes even higher than the tip of the glands. I never see problems. I don't know how it came out, but it came, you know? <laughs> and my question is, how did, didn't no one in the world thought of this before? Because you are not making sutures, you are not making things, in that, and I have a consistent procedure for all distal uh, forms. And now I have more, almost, I'm reaching 170 cases. I can only have some mild uh, glands deesis, but not deesis, but they not come together under pressure. But sometimes you have some disconnection, but still the urethra still uh, the glands, and so uh, they come back, come out with a mid glands beatal. Uh, uh, you see, but uh, it's really nice. It's really nice. I'm really, I'm really happy with this technique. But this still happens bigger. See how many people you can affect in the future. So I'm really happy about it. Let's <laughs> say, uh, Tony, I wish people could see your uh, enthusiasm right now. Um, so, so it brings up a couple questions. Um, so obviously, you know, the holy grail in hyperspadius, I think, is uh, a procedure that's quick, it's easy, effective, but also sort of reproducible across. Mm -hmm you know, all surgeons, you know, across the world, as opposed to, you know, being in the hands of maybe one or two people that are able to get, you know, a really low complication rate. So, so let me ask you this, I, you know, you've already, my next question was really going to be on the modifications that you've done. And, and I can kind of cheat on that because, you know, we've, we did go back to Frankfurt and, and we've done a few of our HIS meetings together, but I think it's great that you have, you know, those videos available. And I looked at, you know, your video on the journal of pediatric urology. I didn't realize you had a YouTube channel. So I think that's, fantastic in terms of a reference there. Um, so let me ask you this, because you talked about, because one of the questions I had was about the thin urethra and what impact that might have. But, you know, when you sort of describe coming up with the scissors just lateral to the spongiosum that's kind of splayed out as it enters into the glands, do you think that that's, I mean, do you sort of specifically reapproximate the sponge and the midlines to kind of reinforce the urethra as you sort of recess that into the glands? Absolutely. This is uh, one of the most important uh, aspects of the surgery. And this is one of the advantages of the disconnection. Because I'm not just disconnecting the urethra. Because uh, the thin part of the urethra, you know, it's always in the ventral surface. The dorsal surface of the urethra is not thin. So when you come with these two flaps in the sponges, you have a thick uh, tissue. And then you are reconstructing the ventral surface. And then when you are putting the urethra uh, upwards in the glands, the first three stitches that you get that will be stability for the uh, urethra 
they will be in the dorsal components. Let's say 11, midnight, uh, zero and one o'clock. So when you do this, you are already done and it's up. And if you are reconstructing, you are dealing, all the stitches that I'm going to do uh, at the tip will involve this sponge tissue uh, to the, the glands. So I don't get trouble. It, it seems I'm not touching that feeling ritual because I'm touching the skin. So how about this then? So one other follow-up question about, so so there is the barcat technique and, and some other people have sort of described urethral advancement. And, you know, like you said, if you sort of try it from the mid shaft and you sort of extend, you know, urethral mobilization too aggressively into the glands, it can really sort of tether the penis forward. So how does, how does, how does the good technique, you know, differ from these previous sort of descriptions of the urethral advancement? The advancement is the same. But what is different? It's a mini advancement. When you see uh, the, the data, the retractions that you have, because you are doing maximal mobilization. So it's one difference. When you look to the barcat, you are just uh, incising the glands, the classical two wings, not that much. So that's the difference in terms of the glands. Another aspect that I've been showing, I have several pictures to show. Because most of these uh, uh, glands, distal glands, when you see them, they are, the, you see there's a preponderance of the transverse axis to the longitudinal axis. The aspect of the glands with the, the good is much better because you are making it more conic. Just pay attention to the glands that you have and try to see the ratio transverse longitudinal. And you see a good number of cases you have a much uh, longer distance in the transverse than in the longitudinal. And when I do the goods, it's amazing because I have everything free, disconnected. So when I do this, I'm, I'm putting the glands downwards. So my technique is a combination of lifting up the reacher and creating a, a visual effect that the glands went down. So that's another advantage. You see, why do all the techniques in distal hypospadia are really about the uh, transverse uh, glands distance, 14 millimeters? Because you need some part of it for the urethra, so you end up with smaller flaps. So you have some limitations. With the good, all the glands you have is to reconstruct it, because you are not using part of the glands to create a urethra. So you have more mobility, you have more the possibility of making it more conical. That's a good point, Tony. Um, and obviously you've got plenty of glands to wrap around the urethra here. And therefore, I guess my question is, given, given the fact that the urethra has got so much glands around it, is there any need for a barrier layer then, for like a, a, a an extra flap on top of this before you close the glands? Or can you just close the glands directly over it? Yeah, in the beginning I was doing this, but uh, recently, well, why should I do this? I'm doing nothing with the ritual. Why should I make it? Ah, another difference. People ask me, ah, you're degrowing too much. Yes, it's amazing. When you start degrowing, the problem is here, but you see very frequently some uh, attachments proximal. So, that's my standard. I just go the glove up to the penis scrotum, mostly, you know, 
release everything. Sometimes you have skin attachments that you have to go down to have everything released to make beautiful. And it looks like that you are elongate in the pen shaft. No, that makes sense. And so, <clears throat> I don't know if this will be our last question, but um, so, <clears throat> you know, there's lots of techniques that are described out in the literature, Antonio, and that I think it can get a little overwhelming. I mean, I think the number is around 300 from what people say. Um, and so, you know, new techniques, it sounds good, you know what I mean? And, and I think there's lots of sort of benefits in terms of what you're describing and you've done already 170 cases um, with relatively short follow-up. And, and we know that long-term follow-up is so key for these patients. How do you, like, what do you say to some of the, you know, the younger, younger surgeons that are going to be listening to this and sort of trying out new techniques in terms of, you know, because there's other things that have been out there, like the magpie, it was all the rage. And then, you know, you sort of found like, oh, maybe there's some things where it's not so great. And Obviously, more recently, you know, the proximal tip, you know, it was everybody could do that for a proximal hypospadias, and obviously time has sort of proven that there's no way that, you know, that's the case anymore. And so, so what do you think? What's your advice for people in terms of, you know, doing this technique and, you know, sort of watching your videos and getting it down pat and then trying it? Yes. For, uh, you know, we as surgeons, we are like sellers. I'm selling my very best. Basin on Flandria. Well, I, I left mines in 1996, so I'm now 25 years of self-experience. Besides all my training, all the cases that I saw in, in mines, Germany. So when I uh, and I try to be always that was I always try to be very honest, and that's the way that I made because with the good uh, today, this is my sixth, my sixth original procedure. Uh, you can look for the three-in-one technique that is one-stage procedure that I used to reconstruct buccal mucosa, the ureter blade, mea flap. And I have good results. I have pictures of patients treated in one time, but with 40%, 45 complications, minor things. But I came uh, with more, uh, more experience to the conclusion that if I go into stages, my and the way I do is very similar to what Mark do. I don't put in proximals at the tip. I make an effect in the glands that looks like, but I don't have this embrace of the glands. I have less than 10% in complications. And you reported one of the most important papers, Chris, for proximals showing 50%. That's what, what I had with 3-1. So with the honesty, I don't do 3-1s uh, anymore. But that gave me... I had to see, I had. I was looking for alternatives. So I, I changed my mind. And with the six procedures, I also uh, participated in the, the Castro-Milfalloplasty for uh, congenital affair. Well, from the first four cases uh, with this technique that changed all the, all the, how we assess the patient, if you see the first paper published by Roberto de Castro, from the fourth cases, Two we have done together here in Brazil. And so with this background, uh, but well, I'm not trying to convince anyone, everyone in the audience, I don't need to do it, but I'm very enthusiastic for medicine. That you, 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 you said, you, saw, you, you told it. That's a passion. <laughs> and that's, I was really influenced by Ron Felder, who was like this. He was always looking for something new, enthusiastic. So what I can do is show my opinion, show my cases, 
open my my service for people who want to come here and see. But anyone at the very end will take his own decisions. And you have to publish. Because I learned this uh, in Germany, in from the America experience. If you are not publishing, if you are not publishing, you even invite me to talk this uh, morning. <laughs> you, are, you invite me because you saw my papers, you I know every meeting uh, presenting my, my experience. So uh, that's uh, what's the way to go, Chris and Fardot. I think that's a that's a good philosophy to end on there, Jens. What do you think? That was a, that was that, I, that was a really really interesting discussion. I had a lot of fun. I just I just want to thank you both for coming on the podcast today, and uh, and I can't I, I'm really looking forward to this one being published. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. It was great. Always always good to, good to meet you for that. And uh, Antonio, always good to see you, of course. <laughs> yes, and I want to thank you both. Thank you, Chris, for this. Uh, we are in the same road for a couple of years. And I remember that uh, Chris and Mark had a project uh, in the, for videos as well, not for discussions that I joined you. So we, we have been uh, discussing hyperspace for a long time. And for God that I met more recently in one of the journal editorial board meetings, uh, it's, it's really amazing the technology and the opportunity to come here to join Europe, uh, America and Brazil at the same morning discussing uh, and really thank you for this it was a major honor for me so uh, thank you very much for the kindness of you all thank you very much